0: Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com.
1: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading I will end by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and we invite you to respond together, thanks be to God. Today's scripture, is, scripture reading is from Romans 8:12 through 17 So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our, with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we, we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Amen. Thank you, Cadence. At this time, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids. You guys can head here to the front and to the doors. If you are in preschool, you can come over here to this side. If you are in K1, over here to this side. Just as a reminder, we do have those clipboards in the connection room. That would serve you guys well. Elementary students, glad you guys are hanging out uh, with us today here in the service. Right, so as I mentioned, this is uh, week two of our uh, little mini vision series that we are doing. and Today, we are going to be considering... Uh, the gospel and uh, adoption. And I'm gonna go ahead and tell you right now, this is probably not one of the shorter sermons that I have prepared. So uh, if you need to go grab some coffee, whatever you need to do, uh, buckle up. I have done all that I can to trim this to what we have here this morning, okay? And the reason why I have such a hard time with this is that if you've been around uh, the King's Church, you know that we are heavily invested into caring for the fatherless and the motherless, whether that be through foster care or through adoption or through supporting ministries that are on the front lines uh, of this work. This is actually something that's been in the DNA of the King's Church before we even planted this church and knew the name uh, of this place and all that God would uh, bring to call uh, the King's Church home. Uh, what I want us to see today is the driving motivation behind the why. Why? Are we engaged in this work? Why do we invest so much time and energy and attention into this particular work? To put my cards on the table, I want to make the case today that caring for the fatherless and the motherless is not meant to be a special interest group of the church, but instead it is actually tied to the very heart of the gospel itself. I've preached on this, I think, three or four times here at our church over the years, and every time that I do, I honestly feel like I become a Christian for the first time all over again as I prep these messages, and that's because I've come to believe uh, what some theologians have said, that adoption is the greatest privilege of the gospel, and it is, I think, the primary picture of our salvation in the New Testament. G.I. Packer puts it this way in his uh, classic book, Knowing God. He says, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, let me ask you, when is the last time you thought about the fact that God is your father and that Jesus is your brother? Do you ever spend time thinking about that? Or maybe you're here and that concept of father might bring up a lot of pain and hardship and disappointments. I want to encourage you this morning, no matter your story here today and whatever this might conjure up, I want us to examine our spiritual adoption in Christ because when we really begin to grasp that, I think it truly changes everything for you as you begin to relate to God and live in the midst of this fallen and broken world. Because I think if we grasp that, then the call to care for the fatherless and the motherless just makes perfect sense. In fact, we can't help But do that. It's the natural overflow because it is our story in the deepest sense. So this morning, here's our main idea coming from Romans 8. Though we were orphans, we have been adopted into God's family and guaranteed an inheritance with Christ. Though we were orphans, we have been adopted into God's family and guaranteed an inheritance with Christ. Before we go any further though, let's uh, pause and pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Uh, Father, help us now as we come to your word. Uh, remind us of truths that we might know in our heads, but fail to feel in our hearts and our experience. Uh, point us to the incredible truth that you have saved us, but not just held us at arm's length, but you have adopted us into your family. You have come near to us and invited us into that nearness in our experience with you through the Holy Spirit. So right now, Holy Spirit, may you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are softened to respond to the good news of the gospel again today. Help us now in this time, we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, I want to look at three implications of this uh, adoption. We're going to look at the idea that we are brothers and sisters by the Spirit, sons of the Father, and co-heirs with the Son. Let's begin back in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 8. If you have a copy of the scriptures, look there with me. Paul writes and says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, similar to many places in the New Testament and in Paul's writings, he addresses the Romans here as brothers, Now, your Bible probably has a little footnote there that helps us appreciate all that's going on here. Uh, This Greek term, while it can be used to refer to a literal brother in your household, it is used throughout the New Testament to address the entire believing community as the household of faith. And so this could also be translated as brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these sections in the New Testament, I think it's easy to glaze over that little filler word, isn't it? I mean, I'm guessing when Caden said the scripture reading today, that didn't really stick out to you or catch your eye, and it shows up all over the place after all, and plus, you know, brother or sister in our context can just be used as a a friendly word, right? Somebody you're close with is your brother or your sister, or in the church, uh, we use it when we just don't remember somebody's name, right? (laughs) But there's so much more going on here than that. When Paul uses this address, it is not merely to indicate a tight acquaintance, or a friend, or to be endearing. In this context, and in this letter to the Romans, this address of brothers and sisters was nothing short of revolutionary. Let me explain why. In Rome, during the time period of the early church, Emperor Claudius Claudius expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome, including those who had become Christians. Then when they were allowed to return sometime before Paul writes this letter, they returned and found a believing church full of Gentiles, of non-Jews. And this, to put it lightly, created some tension. This church community in Rome that Paul is writing to seems to be divided along Jew and Gentile lines. They disagreed about what exactly it meant to follow Jesus with all of their different customs and traditions and backgrounds. And this is not just an issue in the book of Romans, by the way. You can make the case that the single biggest issue of the New Testament, outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles within the church. And if we just consider the situation for a moment, we can understand why. For these Jewish Christians, the church was birthed out of Judaism. The scriptures of the church were the Jewish scriptures. Jesus himself was a Jewish man. And Israel began not as a government or a nation, but as 12 brothers, the literal sons of Jacob. So these Jewish Christians are looking around and saying, Okay, well, shouldn't these Gentiles become like us? Shouldn't they start to follow dietary restrictions? Shouldn't they be observing the Sabbath in the same way that we have observed the Sabbath? Shouldn't they be circumcised and apply the sign of the covenant? I mean, those are not small issues, particularly that last one. Shouldn't that happen? The question that stands over the community of the church, the question that looms in the background of the whole New Testament is this Are we really brothers and sisters? Are we really family? After all, to these Jewish people, these outsiders looked different, they ate different, they had different customs, different languages. They used to frequent some sketchy establishments. They used to engage in some pretty disturbing practices. They were sexually promiscuous. They have a bit of a checkered past, and they're really our brothers and our sisters. You feel the weight of those words now? When Paul here addresses them in this way, it is a massive deal. He is reminding the church in Rome, and he is reminding us that the church of Jesus Christ is a new family, And it is a family that is not formed by the blood of biology, but by the blood of the cross. And we have been united, Paul says, by the Spirit of God, which means this new family is committed to living by the Spirit and no longer by the flesh. To live according to the flesh means to live according to the patterns of this world and to divide along the lines that this world divides along. This leads to tribalism, and at best, a skin-deep analysis and evaluation of the people around us. And Paul reminds them, do not live that way. That way leads to death. In Christ, we are no longer debtors to this way of life. He says we owe nothing to the flesh. Instead, we live as those who have been given the Spirit of God. It's interesting, when Jesus talks about the coming of the Spirit of the God, he actually puts it in the context of adoption. John 14 He says this, and I will ask the Father, speaking to his disciples, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then listen to what he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, Coming of the Holy Spirit is the beginning of Jesus' word fulfilled. We will not be left as orphans, and one of the reasons that we know that is because we've been given the Spirit of God. And this is a foretaste of his promised return at the end of the age, where he will gather in his whole family of brothers and sisters once and for all as he makes all things new and sets all things right. Which means for us today, being brothers and sisters really ought to mean something more than a filler word. It ought to mean something more than just a courteous greeting. For those who are in Christ, we truly are brothers and sisters in the deepest sense of that word. But we have different backgrounds, different testimonies and stories, that we might have different skin colors, different tax brackets, different political affiliations and sports allegiances, different strengths and weaknesses, friends, look around, we are brothers and sisters. And the more that we lean into this, by the way, and not divide ourselves up according to the flesh like the world does, the more that we do that, all of a sudden, caring for the fatherless and the motherless becomes a natural priority. Because the body of Christ is not a place for warring factions. It's not the place to value someone's biological heritage over others. It is a place for loving siblings whom none of us were natural born children into the kingdom of God. So are we living by the Spirit in this way? This is why D.A. Carson says that the church is most powerful when it is naturally made up not of friends but of natural enemies. Because what can explain that when two people who have no reason to be together all of a sudden live, not just as acquaintances, but as brothers and sisters. That's the church. Are we really brothers and sisters? Secondly, Paul says we are sons of the Father. And If you're wondering why I haven't labeled this sons and daughters, you're just going to have to hold on to the last point, okay? Sons of the Father. Look at verse 14 and following. For all who are led by the Spirit of God... Are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the dangers I think we have in the church today is our definition of what it means to be spiritual or spirit filled. Like, if I asked you, what is somebody that is spiritual? Like, how would you describe them? I think we often associate that by someone who kind of floats their way through life. They're always just, like, singing Chris Tomlin in the background, right? They can dispense pithy sayings of wisdom on a dime. They seem to always have a smile on their face. That's kind of what we think about with spiritual. Maybe it's just me, and if that's just me, sorry. Now, those things may or may not be true, but Paul here is pointing out the heart of what it means to be spiritual in the biblical sense. Paul here says one of the primary works of the Holy Spirit is to instill a deep sense within us that God is indeed our Father. To be spiritual is to live with a constant childlike dependence upon God as our Father. The Holy Spirit works within us to confirm our identity in this way when everything in our flesh wants to push back and say that's not true. Paul says here there's two different ways to live. You either live as those who have received the spirit of adoption that makes you a son of God, or you live as someone who has received a spirit of slavery that leads to fear. Now, slavery conjures up vivid imagery for us today, as it should, But it was even more impactful for those in the first century hearing these words shared. There's no doubt that there are people in the room while this letter is being read who were themselves slaves. In fact, some 35 to 40% of the Roman population was estimated to be in some kind of indentured servanthood. And think about the contrast for a moment of your experience in a household where you are a slave versus a son. They have a fundamentally different experience, don't they? A son knows they're standing in the house. They know the security of their father. Even if they mess up or don't perform properly, they are still the son, and their father ought to still love them. A slave, on the other hand, doesn't know that kind of security. A slave lives questioning the head of the household's feelings toward them, which is why Paul pinpoints fear as being the experience of a slave. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize just how wired toward fear we are, even in the Christian life. The default of the fallen human heart is to resort to fear as we relate to God. In fact, we have a deep spiritual lineage of this being true of us. It happened in the garden. Adam and Eve sin, and they feel an overwhelming sense of fear. Ever since then, it's been the same thing. We're no different than the Israelites who, after being reminded of their status, of being the firstborn son of God who has chosen them, after they are delivered mightily from the Egyptians who barely make it across the Red Sea before they begin to grumble and complain, you know what they do? They beg Moses, let's just go back to Egypt. And why do they do that? Because they knew where their water was coming from and they could eat what they wanted. All of a sudden, when they took a step of faith, following God, their father, out into the wilderness, but then all of a sudden, it was out of their control how they got water and food. What do they want to do? They want to go back. They want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to what's comfortable, back to what they can control and manage on their own. And Paul says, don't do that. That is the spirit of fear. We are too often like the younger son in Jesus' parable. The one who goes off and squanders his father's inheritance that he has taken prematurely. He hits rock bottom, and at his rock bottom, he devises a plan. Listen, since I'm not worthy to be called a son anymore, here's what I'll do. I'll go back, and I'll offer to work for my father. I'll go back as a hired servant, and I will earn my way back in. He's making that long, shameful walk home. But before he makes it back to the house, before he begins his stump speech that surely he's been running through his head over and over again, his father sees him at a distance. He runs to him. He embraces him. He throws the best robe on him. He slides the family ring on his finger and throws a feast of celebration. And why does the father do that? Because his son has come home. He is no slave that needs to fear. He is the son who has returned. And listen, if you're in this room and you have put your faith in Christ, that is your story. God is no longer a judge that we fear, but our Father who has poured out his lavish love upon us in Christ Jesus. But listen, that feels too good to be true sometimes, doesn't it? I'm sure it felt too good to be true for that younger brother. And in our lives, when we struggle with sin, when we come back to the same things over and over again that seem to plague us, when we don't feel like we're really living up the Christian life as we should, all of a sudden we're reverting to a spirit of slavery that leads to fear rather than the freedom of being a son. Which is why, precisely why, the Spirit of God reminds our spirit over and over and over again what is really true about us in Christ. That is one of the primary works of the Spirit. Look at verse 16 again. It says, The Spirit Himself. What a great little phrase. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God. Dane Ortland says it this way He says, The Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us, not just heard, but seen, and not just seen, but felt, and not just felt, but enjoyed. The Spirit takes what we read in the Bible and believe on paper about Jesus' heart and it moves it from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. It is one thing as a child to be told your Father loves you. You believe Him, you take Him at your word, but it is another thing, unutterably more real, to be swept up in His embrace, to feel the warmth. To hear his beating heart within his chest, to instantly know the protective grip of his arms. It is one thing to hear he loves you, it's another thing to feel his love. And listen, that is the glorious work of the Spirit. And Paul says here that it is by that work of the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, Abba would have been, for many children, the first two syllables they would have learned to babble or speak as they looked into their father's face. It was a term of intimacy, a child cooing for their dad. And in one sense here, Paul is saying, listen, because you have been given the spirit of adoption as sons, you have that kind of intimate access to the God of the universe who is your father. He is your Abba. It's meant to point us to the assurance of our spirit of adoption. But it's not just assurance, it also invites us into an honest angst about the way this world is. Notice Paul here says that this is a cry of Abba, Father. It is not merely a cute utterance of Dada in a childlike babble. Instead, this is translated something more like a scream. In just a few verses, he will say the Spirit intercedes with us with a groaning too deep for words for us when we don't even know what to pray. That is what this Abba cry is getting at. It is a desperate scream of help. In fact, whenever Abba shows up in the New Testament three times, here in Galatians in the same context, and the third time is Jesus praying in the garden. It comes from a place of pain. In the prayer of Jesus in the garden, the one who is sweating drops of blood, about to be crucified, praying, Abba. Father, let this cup pass. This is why it is less cute babble and more like the kind of scream that happens when a child falls down and scrapes their knee as they're learning how to walk. It's the kind of crying when they whack their head on the dining room table that's just the right height to clip them every time. It's the kind of crying you hear in the middle of the night from the other bedroom when someone has a nightmare and they feel scared. They cry out, Abba, Father, help me. And listen, that's what the Spirit does within us. Yes, he assures us that we are sons of God, but he also leads us to cry out in the face of our brokenness, in the face of our frustration with sin. When we keenly feel the effects that things here are not the way they are supposed to be, when we feel the sting of death, when we feel the tug back to live as if we were orphans and not a son, the Spirit teaches us in an instant almost as an instinct, a reflex to cry out from within us, to reach our arms upward, outstretched, looking for an embrace from our Father, crying, Abba. Russell Moore, in his book, uh, Adopted for Life, which you should read, but I will warn you, will wreck you. He tells the story of adopting two boys from a Russian orphanage. He describes them when they got to the orphanage, amongst all the disturbing things they saw and experienced that one thing in particular stood out. There was a haunting, eerie silence that just permeated the whole building. It took them to reconcile how this could be since there were cribs and babies in every single room, but then they realized that these children didn't cry because no one was responding to them. No one was coming. So they stopped. And he says, rightly, this is dehumanizing in its horror. And he's right, but listen to me, brothers and sisters... In Christ Jesus, that is not our story, no matter what you might feel. Because we have the Spirit of God, we are provoked in the face of all that's wrong to cry out, Abba, Father, and it is heard by our Father. It's precisely in these moments where we feel the brokenness of the world or our own sinfulness, it's precisely at the confrontation point when we want to go back to the spirit of slavery that leads to fear, it is precisely when we feel like we are not worthy to be called children of God that the spirit says, no, you cry out, Abba, Father, and he hears you. And he hears you because he hears Jesus. And the last point that Paul wants to drive home is not just that we're brothers and sisters as incredible as that is, not just that we are sons of God as unbelievable as that is, but that we are co-heirs with Christ which means all that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Look at verse 17. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The last thing that adoption touches on here is the issue of inheritance. Now, we tend to think of inheritance today as a lump sum of money that's sitting in a bank account that we get when our great aunt Sally dies, right? But inheritance in this context is a far bigger deal than that. It had more of an everydayness about it. It had to do with your livelihood, your vocation and your trade and what you would pass on to your children and to their children's children and to their children's children. Someone's inheritance was the engine of your survival as a lineage. But everyone knew in this context that the inheritance always went to the firstborn son in the family. Women, daughters, were included in this only through marriage, and they would only receive an inheritance through her husband. That's why widows were at such risk in this cultural context. The inheritance would never go to a daughter. In fact, adoption was practiced in the Greco-Roman world by those who needed a male heir. But they would never adopt girls. It didn't make sense in their culture. But you know who did adopt little girls? Almost immediately is the church. They rescued and adopted little girls who were sometimes literally just left outside the gates of the city and the sun unwanted. And you know why they did that? was because of exactly what Paul is teaching right here. The reason I didn't say sons and daughters of the Father, and the reason that Paul doesn't add daughters is not because he's being insensitive to women, and it's not because he's excluding women. In fact, he's being radically subversive. Tim Keller says it this way, we should not try to correct scripture. It is true that in Rome, sonship was a status of privilege and power given only to males, Yet Paul now has the boldness to apply this to us, to all believers. This shows that God does not distinguish in giving honor. All Christians, male and female, are now his heirs. It was a subversive thing for Paul to take a masculine-only institution and show that in Christ, the institution of empowering through adoption is used on females as well as males without distinction. Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the bride of Christ. Listen, if Paul wrote there that you've become sons and daughters of the Father, you know it had been very easy for the church in Rome to do? It's like, okay, great, we've all got access to the Father, and we all know that the inheritance goes through the sons. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he ropes the entire believing community, brothers and sisters, men and women, and looks at all of us and says, you are sons of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. We don't divide up that inheritance amongst ourselves. It is all given to us. It does not eliminate womanhood. It actually esteems it to its rightful place. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Now, this inheritance means three things. The first thing it means is that our past is now redefined. Let me suggest something to you that might actually revolutionize the way you read the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. I'm guessing in this room, most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us would be Gentiles in the biblical sense of that word, as in we're not Jewish, okay? But if you're anything like me, we don't tend to read our Bibles that way, do we? Like, we open up the Old Testament, and we like to think we're the chosen ones, right? We're the good guys in the story. We are David, not Goliath. We're in the mighty army of Gideon, not the Midianites who are attacking God's people. We're in Jerusalem. We're not the Babylonians who pillaged it and brought God's people into exile. We're the Israelites, not the Egyptians. But the reality is, from a fleshly standpoint, that ain't us. We were the outsiders, We were the ones far off, Paul says in Ephesians, from the presence of God and the covenants of promise. We were without hope in the world because we were without a relationship with God. We were not the good guys, quote-unquote, in the story. And when we realize that, it should drive home the weight of what Paul's about to say in the next chapter, in the next few chapters, that we Gentiles have been grafted into a new family tree. But it is only through the crucifixion of Christ that that happens. Paul says this over in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. But keep going. Why did he do that? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, I made you feel bad about reading your Bible that way, but guess what? You should read your Bible that way because that is now your true lineage. That is now our true family. We have been grafted in. Christ, in his crucifixion, died so that we might be brought in, the outsiders now, the insiders, those outside the family, brothers and sisters, sons and heirs, which means this. Whoever you are in this room, you are not the sum of your biological background or your biological family, whatever that may look like, good or bad. You are not the sum of your past choices and decisions. You are not whatever your history looks like in the flesh. No, God in Jesus Christ is bringing you into a new family, a new lineage. In Christ, all the promises given to Abraham, Moses, and David, they now apply to us. The people of God are now us. We are brought into this tree connected by faith. No matter what you have done, no matter what your story is, if you are in Christ, your past has been redefined. And then secondly, our present is redeemed. I think if we really grasp this, it would change everything for us. Far too often we live our lives thinking, okay, yes, God has saved me from my sins. And praise the Lord, I'm not going to hell anymore. But that's kind of the extent of where we get to. We think that God's up there kind of looking at us, and, you know, he sees that we're trying, but he's a little disappointed in us. He's got just a little bit of a frown on his face as he looks down at me. Because after all, just look at my life. But think about adoption for a moment. Adoption, maybe more than anything else, shows us the profound nature of the love of God towards us. Because after all, adoption is a choice, isn't it? It's not an obligation. It's not something that you just end up getting forced into. It's an active choice to move toward the vulnerable and to welcome them into a family. And for those of you in this room who have adopted or fostered, you know firsthand how incredibly costly it is in every sense of that word, costly. But this is precisely how God has moved towards us in Christ. None of us are worthy, but all of us welcomed in by God's grace at the cost of the blood of Jesus himself, but free for us to receive. God so loved us that he adopted us. He didn't have to do that, but he chooses to do so. And then when we realize this, we see his posture towards us as not, well, I've saved you, great, but now I'll kind of tolerate you and put up with you. No, when he views us, he sees us as beloved children. We get all the privileges and rights of being a part of the family. God loves you, and I know you've probably heard this, but listen to it. God loves you right now the same way that he loves Jesus himself. But do we live that way? You want to fight sin well? Believe that's true. Believe you have the security of the love of a father like that. That'll help you fight sin. Put down the self-salvation projects. Put down all the things that you're trying in your own flesh to muster up. You are a child of God. You are a son of the Father. You are co-heirs with Christ. If you want to fight sin, fight sin from there. It's incredible news. Even when we sin, Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not. Your past has been redefined, and your present is redeemed. But that's not all. Our future is also secure. So often we slip back into the spirit of slavery and the fear that grips us there precisely because we're anxious about the future. We know the promises of God of what allies us out ahead, but we can't really see it, at least not in the way that we see other things. We can't grasp hold of it. It's out beyond us and beyond what we can really control and manage in our own power. Which means sometimes when we think about that uncertain future from our vantage point, instead of going there in faith, we revert back to the flesh. And we try to store up a future for ourselves. We try to make sure that things are going to be okay in our own power. And it misses that our future is secure in the greatest sense it ever could. If I could illustrate a story from a, a pastor friend of mine who had a family who adopted two young boys from the Ukraine in their congregation. And after they brought them home, they, uh, after a couple weeks, they just kept finding food just all over the house. What was happening is when they would give their kids meals or snacks, uh, they would start stockpiling them. They would stuff them in couch cushions and hide them in their bed and in their room. And finally, they realized through the language barrier what was going on that, you know, in their prior life, if they got food, they didn't know when more food was coming. And so they would store it up for later to ensure they'd be fed. So you know what these parents did? These parents walked over to the fridge. And they opened both doors wide as they could. And they said, listen, all of this is yours. All of this is yours. And friends, that is our inheritance in Christ. All that is given to Christ is ours. If you don't believe me, listen to Paul in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Picture God opening up the fridge and the freezer. This is all yours. Because we are co-heirs with Christ, we will one day be glorified with him. What belongs to Jesus belongs to us. We will one day rule with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And a bloody cross and an empty tomb tells us that we can bank it all on that. Our past has been redefined. Our present is redeemed and our future is secure. What is it that you're anxious about for the future? What is it? It's all truly going to work out in the end. It is. I want us to consider two things as we close. The first is that there's some of you here who need to know that there is a father who has extended a welcome to you into his family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a father who's inviting you to be a full participant in the family of God. The invitation is this, in faith, turn away from the slavery and the fear of this world And come home to your father who has run down the road ahead of you to grab you. Whose arms are outstretched and ready to receive you no matter what you've done. it feels too good to be true, you're grasping just how powerful it is. Our brother Jesus is beckoning us home. Through his death in our place, his resurrection to defeat the evil forces that raged. He has delivered us from fear. Our future is secure. He's extending that invitation to any and all who would believe. Some of you here this morning, you just need to believe that's true. You need to dare to believe it's true, if I could put it that way. And then secondly, at this point, I hope you can see the practical outworking of this. Caring for the fatherless and the motherless is not a special interest to group within the church. It is the very heart of the gospel, which means it's not a matter of if God has called us in the church to orphan care, but rather how he has called us to care for the fatherless and the motherless. Because if this is really our story, then how could we look around at those who find themselves in this situation and not be moved to do something? Maybe, for some of you here today, you're being called to consider adoption or foster care more seriously than you have before. Maybe that's what you leave with today. Now, I wanna say, this does not mean that every single one of us in this room will have a child in our home. It will mean that for some of you, and it already means that for many of you, so many of you. But it does mean that all of us have a responsibility here, which means that we pray, we babysit, we bring meals, we financially invest our money, we volunteer, we raise awareness, we support, and we encourage, we do all that we can to care for the father and motherless, because by caring for the fatherless and the motherless, we are telling the greatest story in the universe for telling of the gospel that we are adopted children into the kingdom of our Father. In fact, the very kingdom of God, all of its citizens are adopted children. That includes you and me. So listen, this morning, however that hits you, here's my exhortation to you Is God your Father? And do you really believe that to be true? Jesus, our brother, has sent. Spirit of God within us to bear witness, to cry out, Abba Father. Cry out today, Abba Father, feel the assurance of that. And let's live on mission to proclaim that good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have adopted us as your beloved children. We thank you that uh, though we were unworthy that we are following the course of this world, that your grace has broken in, you have called us to yourself, you have brought us into your family, you have saved us by your grace, and you have given us an inheritance that is secure in Christ. We thank you that for all who have received you, who believe in your name, you have given the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. May you instill that deep within our hearts so that when we doubt, when we wander, when we want to turn back, we cry out, Abba, Father, and we remember your care for us as just that, our Father. So, Lord, those who do not know you as that this morning, may you open their eyes, turn their hearts to see and believe in that. And may they be welcomed into a family of fellow sojourners and strangers who have been made brothers and sisters. And for those who do know that here in this room and for us at the King's Church, help us to be on the front lines of this mission. Help us to invest heavily in this work as we remember our own adoption in Christ and as we proclaim the greatest truth in the universe to the world around us that needs it. Empower us, provide for us, help us be faithful in this way. We ask that in Christ's name, amen.